Episode 25, Constantine, the Church, and the Creeds. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 25, Constantine, the Church, and the Creeds. In the late 200s, while the Roman Empire was struggling with a long series of bad emperors and empire-wide troubles with barbarians, Christianity was spreading all throughout the empire. However, not everyone was happy about this. One of the things that had always been a common point of culture in the Roman Empire was how they worshipped their gods. Most people had a personal god that was the one god they followed, like Jupiter. And they also had lares, which were sort of the personal guardian spirits of a family. It was also seen as important to follow the festivals of all the local gods, even if that wasn't your particular god. It was seen as important that people, cities, and towns followed certain worship rituals for events like weddings and births and occasionally administrative tasks in the empire. All of this was called, in general, honoring the gods. And all of Rome saw this as very important. They had a sense that their devotion was one of the reasons that Rome was strong. The gods were honoring Rome for its devotion. On top of this, the Romans began deifying some of their emperors, starting with Augustus. So some of the official Roman rituals would include a prayer honoring, for example, the divine Augustus. Following these rituals and honoring the departed Caesar as a god, these were part of the overall culture of honoring the gods. The empire was a very, very diverse place, and one of the efforts that the empire took to create unity and promote the imperial administration was to establish the worship of the emperor as a deity. This became something of a state religion and many official public rituals, celebrations, even simple administrative tasks like paying your taxes— often involved some kind of oath, swearing allegiance to the divine Augustus, or perhaps even just saying, Hail Caesar. There are also pagan sacrifices involved in some of these rituals. It also became the duty of every citizen to go once a year to a temple of Caesar somewhere to offer incense and to declare, Caesar is Lord. The Romans were, of course, free to worship other gods as well, but if they refused to worship Caesar, it was seen as sedition, and even citizens could be sent to jail for not obeying. Now, of course, most Christians openly refused to say that anyone was Lord except Jesus, so many were jailed and some were killed. Now, noncompliant groups like the Jews had always been hesitant to participate in Roman worship rituals, and this was also true of the Christians. It wasn't a new thing. But the Romans saw the Jews as an old, established, respectable religion, and therefore they gave them some leeway. They saw the Christians, though, as some sort of new, odd thing that had just popped up out of nowhere, and they didn't trust it. Plus, the Jews were mostly localized to Judea, and Christians were springing up everywhere. Many people in the empire thought that the Christians were a threat to the harmony and culture of Rome. Many Christians also refused to participate in some of the popular activities of Roman daily life, like the bloody gladiatorial fights, the drinking parties, pagan feasts and festivals, or eating meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god, which was most of the meat in Rome. Because they didn't participate in these activities, Christians were seen as different, non-Roman, and suspicious. 
Christians often also kept to themselves. In places where their meetings were illegal, they met in secret. Sometimes they met in caves or in catacombs. Catacombs are burial tunnels under the city. And in people's houses. Because they met in secret, many Romans wondered what they did. And wild rumors began to spread about them being cannibals and engaging in other illegal activities. One standard Christian ritual, which was apparently practiced very early on in the church's history, was the Lord's Supper. If you've been to church before, you know this ritual well. You eat some bread, which represents Jesus' flesh, and you drink some wine, which represents his blood. In this way, you remember Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross on your behalf. But if you're a Roman who hasn't actually participated in the ritual, and you hear that the Christians are eating flesh and drinking blood, well, that seems kind of sketchy. Ancient Rome was a pretty bloody place with the wars and the gladiatorial combats and all, but even the Romans thought that cannibalism was the worst kind of barbarity. So you have these Christians meeting in secret caves and tunnels and supposedly practicing cannibalism, and you can see why the Romans might have been suspicious and why at times the Christians were persecuted. But despite local and empire-wide waves of persecution, the church kept growing. Some scholars have theorized that this church growth is part of the reason that Rome began to fall apart. In some places, different parts of the empire, whole towns and regions began to have a Christian majority. And this made those towns much harder to manage from an imperial point of view, since they wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as lord. Christianity also undercut some key cultural and bureaucratic ties that held the empire together. And as I said, another factor in, the, in Rome falling apart was that there was a long string of ineffective emperors that affected the stability of the empire as well. That all changed, though, in AD 284, when Diocletian became the emperor. Diocletian will reign for almost 20 years until AD 305. He was known as a good, effective emperor, but he did start an empire-wide persecution of the church that lasted even after his reign ended. Diocletian also intentionally split the empire into two halves, the west and the east, and he appointed a general named Maximian to rule the west from Rome, while Diocletian ruled the east. But Diocletian fell ill, and in 305, he voluntarily abdicated the throne he was the only Roman emperor to ever do that. And after he left, all the ruling structures fell apart. After Diocletian, there was civil war for eight years as various parties fought for the throne and control of all or part of the empire. Then, in AD 312, there was a famous battle for control of the West between a general named Maxentius, different than Maximian, Maxentius, and another general named Constantine at a bridge over the Tiber River called the Milvian Bridge. The evening before this famous battle, Constantine, and perhaps some of his troops as well, saw a vision of either a cross or perhaps a Cairo, and they heard a voice say, in this sign, you will conquer. Now, Cairo, it's the first two Greek letters of the name Christ, and the Cairo symbol was already being used by the church. By the way, it kind of looks like a capital P with an X across it. Look it up. You'll see what I'm talking about. Anyway, Constantine took this as a sign from the Christian God, and he had crosses, or perhaps Kairos, painted on all the shields of his soldiers before the battle. Constantine and his troops won a decisive battle at the Milvian Bridge, and Constantine became the sole emperor of the West. 
It took him another 12 years, but by AD 324, he had conquered the East again and reunified the empire. So Constantine is regarded as the first Christian emperor, though it's possible he didn't really convert right away. It is reported, though, that he was baptized just before he died. He was extremely open to the church, though, after his vision and victory. And the very next year, in AD 313, he issued what is known as the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity an officially recognized religion in the Roman Empire. Now, honestly, I don't think this was a very good thing, though. I'll come back to why that is in a minute. Once Christianity was officially recognized, Christians could be much more open about what they were doing and about discussing their beliefs, and boy, did they have a lot to discuss. A couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that the early church fathers were writing mostly about what they thought was orthodox belief, and they were also busy calling other writers heretics. You're a heretic! No, you're a heretic! There wasn't any central body that could make a ruling on what was correct belief and what wasn't. There's a lot of discussion going back and forth about different beliefs. I mentioned previously, for example, that Marcion had considered the God of the Old Testament to be a different God than the God of the New Testament. And almost all the other early Christian writers denounced this idea as heretical. And they said that the orthodox belief was that God was the same in the Old Testament and in the New, but that he had started a new covenant with his people. Another example of a famous heresy was Arianism. There was a teacher from Alexandria named Arius, and he began to teach that Jesus was not the same as God, but that Jesus was the very first thing that God had ever created, and thus that Jesus was not eternal, nor was he of the same divine essence as God. In other words, Jesus was not divine. He was just the first and most important thing God had ever created. Arius's teachings began to gain a lot of followers, in part because it's easier to understand than the idea that Jesus and God are somehow exactly the same and exactly different at the same time. Remember, at this point, the doctrine of the Trinity hadn't clearly been articulated. People were still working it out. Remember how I said that the Bible is sometimes kind of vague about things that we would like to have explained really clearly? This is definitely one of those things. The Bible does seem to very clearly claim that Jesus is fully God, and it also claims that he is fully man but it is not clear about how that actually works. So, early on, several heresies developed as people tried to explain how Jesus was human and God at the same time. And then people often tended to dismiss one or the other of those sides. The Gnostics, for example, claimed that Jesus wasn't fully man, that he was just a spirit that appeared to be a man. Again, it was easier to explain away either Jesus' divine nature or his human nature, and then claim that he was just all of one, either all spirit or that he was all human. Or it was easier to say that he was perhaps an important angel, which is sort of what Arius believed. Since this was easier to comprehend, people began to believe it, and the belief began to spread. But a lot of other church leaders denounced Arianism. There was an important Spanish bishop named Hosius, who apparently gained the ear of the emperor Constantine and encouraged the emperor to call together a council of all the church leaders to decide this question. So, in AD 325, Constantine, the emperor of the Roman Empire, remember, called a church council, and he invited all the church bishops to the city of Nicaea, which is in Turkey, not far from Constantinople. 
about 300 bishops from all over the empire showed up, and the main point of discussion was this question of whether Jesus was fully God. Arius was apparently there in Nicaea, although since he wasn't actually yet a bishop, he might not have been in on all the main debates, though it was clearly his teaching that they were discussing. Interesting side notes about other attendees. Constantine himself was occasionally there in the conference as well, and apparently he addressed the assembly and asked them to behave with consideration and to come to an agreement. The emperor of Rome sitting in on a church council, that's a big deal. Also, as far as attendees go, there was a bishop there from the town of Myra, which is on the coast of Turkey, named Nicholas. Surely you've heard of him, right? Come on, you know you have. St. Nicholas? Yes, that same St. Nick whose life became the seed of the Santa Claus stories. So, Santa was there at the Council of Nicaea. See, I told you he was real. Anyway, all of these bishops and other people came together in Nicaea as the first official council of all of the church. The council planned to discuss a couple of important church questions, but most importantly to discuss Arianism. After much heated discussion back and forth over the course of days and weeks, the council decided to condemn Arianism. It wasn't quite unanimous. There were two bishops who supported Arius and they disagreed, but the rest of the group all affirmed the idea that Jesus was fully God and made of the same substance or essence as God. They then published the first official creed of the Christian church, which is now known as the Nicene Creed. The, a creed is basically just an official statement of belief, but it's meant to be affirmed by all the members of the church. If you've ever been to church before, you've probably spoken the Apostles' Creed, which starts with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Now, these creeds are meant to be both teaching tools, that is to teach new believers what they believe, but they're also sort of a doctrinal test. In other words, if you believe this creed and you can agree to it, you're one of us. And if not, well, you're a heretic. The oldest creed that we have record of is the Apostles' Creed. There's nothing in the Bible that links this creed directly to any of the actual apostles, but the creed is very old, so it may be that the apostles really did have something to do with it. It's also interesting to me that the Apostles' Creed is so short. It basically just has 12 things that one's supposed to believe in, and in theory, if you believed just those 12 things and nothing more, you could consider yourself a Christian. You didn't really need to have a lot of baggage in other areas of belief or doctrine, like understanding Calvinism or Arianism or anything that qualifies as an ism. Just the 12 points, it's all the essentials. The Nicene Creed is longer than the Apostles' Creed, and it makes a bigger deal of explaining what the church believes about Jesus. Here's what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that much is kind of like the Apostles' Creed, but here it starts to get into more detail about Jesus. Begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, whether things in heaven or things on earth, who, because of us men and because of our salvation, came down and became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. But as for those who say, there was, when he was not, 
And they say, before being born, he was not. And they say, he came into existence out of nothing. Or, who assert that the Son of God is of a different hypostasis or substance, or was created, or is subject to alteration or change, these people, the Catholic and Apostolic Church, anathematizes. So, there you have it. You have this long section of saying God from God, light from light, true God from true God, right there in the middle, making explicit the point that Jesus and God are made of the same stuff, that Jesus is God. Now, of course, there's a bit of a paradox built into this idea, and that's what the church is asking people to believe. They're saying Jesus is God and man at the same time. That's a bit hard to wrap your head around because God and man seem to be such very different things that it's hard to see how Jesus could be both at the same time. But that's what the Bible seems to claim, and that's what the church came together and stated as the official doctrine at Nicaea. Also, the creed has that interesting bit at the end, anathematizing anyone who teaches Arianism. That means that those people are declared anathema, which sort of means cursed. And they're also excluded from the church. It meant you were excommunicated. Excommunication means that you can no longer take communion. And it means the church has told you you are no longer part of the church. You are no longer welcome in the church. That idea of anathematizing and excommunication also later comes to have the implication that your salvation has been officially removed by the church, though this wasn't clearly the case in the time of Nicaea. After the creed was agreed upon and Arius and the two bishops refused to agree, the council excommunicated them. Constantine, again the emperor of Rome, accepted the council's decision and he had Arius and the other two bishops exiled to Bithynia. Now, I think this is kind of a bad precedent, right? Using imperial power, the power of the Roman Empire, to enforce the decision of the church. Bad idea, bad idea. In subsequent years, there were several other church councils in different places, putting more definition to the idea of the Trinity and also asserting that Jesus was both fully God and still fully man. But the Nicene Council was the most important of these councils. It also marked a turning point for the church as the leaders of the church cooperated with the rulers of the Roman Empire to settle church matters. As I mentioned earlier, though, I think that this official sanctioning of the church by the Roman Empire was maybe the worst thing that ever happened to the church up until televangelists. From this point on, the church became more and more a part of the structure of the Roman Empire, almost like the church was the religious branch of the government. The church consciously modeled itself after the Roman Empire, keeping Rome as its headquarters and having the most important bishop of the church be the Bishop of Rome. The Bishop of Rome even took on the name of the old high priest of Rome, Pontifex Maximus. That was the name of the high priest of Rome who had presided over all of Rome's pagan religious rituals. The church was becoming more and more Roman and more and more bureaucratic. And then in AD 380, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Because of its official position, the church became more and more important, more powerful, and more wealthy. And just like Rome, the church became more and more corrupt. Now that's not to say that there were not still good people in many places throughout the church. There were many, many deeply sincere believers. Even at the most corrupt times of the church, there were people who were trying to follow Christ wholeheartedly. But at the top, the church was often corrupt, 
and high church offices were eventually bought and sold by wealthy families who wanted positions of power and prestige. Later, once the Roman Empire fell, the church kind of stood alone as the central power structure over much of Europe for many years, and at times during the Middle Ages, it was the church who crowned rulers over different areas. The church's abuse of political power and its corruption would eventually lead to the Reformation, but we're really getting ahead of ourselves there because that won't happen for another thousand years. So, back to Constantine. Constantine was apparently a believer in Christianity and was apparently baptized on his deathbed. Constantine also is noted for one other major thing. He founded the city of Constantinople, and he moved the capital of the Roman Empire there. But Constantine was one of the last rulers to rule a united Roman Empire. After him, his sons separately ruled different parts of the empire, but then they began to fight amongst themselves, and then, again, after that, there was a period of civil war. Later, the emperor Justinian briefly reunited the empire, then it was split again, and then finally Theodosius, who was a devout Christian, ruled a united empire from A.D. 379 to A.D. 395. But after that, it was permanently split into an eastern section that was ruled from Constantinople and a western section ruled from Rome or Ravenna. We'll look more at these last emperors next week when we get to our final episode on Rome. Finally, really, I mean it. We really are almost done with Rome.